From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Acting Office of Management and Budget Director Russ Vogt is one step closer to becoming the permanent director. Vogt told the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee at his confirmation hearing Tuesday he'll cooperate with Congress, Inspectors General, and the Government Accountability Office on oversight audits and investigations. GovExec reports President Trump nominated Vote to be the permanent director of OMB in March. The Office of Personnel Management's response to the pandemic and a merger with the General Services Administration will be two of Craig Lean's priorities if the Senate confirms him to be the next OPM Inspector General. The Senate took his testimony and asked him questions at the same hearing as vote on Tuesday. Federal News Network reports Lean would only be the second permanent IG since 1990 at OPM if the Senate confirms him. Two jobs at the Pentagon now have permanent occupants. Victor Mercado will be the next Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy, Plans and Capabilities. James Anderson will be Deputy Undersecretary for Policy. Defense News reports both nominees got at least 75 Senate votes for confirmation. The USS Mustin is the latest Navy ship to conduct freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea. Stars and Stripes reports a spokesperson for the 7th Fleet says the Mustin's mission was to challenge claims by China, Taiwan and Vietnam to sail near the Paracel Islands. FONOPs like the Mustin's may not be the most efficient, though, moving forward. Thomas Mankin is president and chief executive officer of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. Tom, thanks very much for coming on the program. You and your colleagues at CSBA are talking about a concept called deterrence by detection. What do you mean by that? What's the definition of that term, Tom? The whole idea behind deterrence by detection is is to try to deal with one of the most pressing challenges that we face, which, as you mentioned in your introduction, is uh, creeping, you know, creeping uh, annexation of, of different areas and even the, the, the challenge of uh, opportunistic aggression. So the, the basic notion behind deterrence by detection is that aggressors are much less likely to commit aggression if they are being watched, if they're being watched 24 seven, and if the, uh, the, the information from, from, uh, from ISR platforms is being disseminated widely. When I talk to Navy leaders on this program, a lot of people, uh, almost all of them, say the key is presence. What would give us the presence that we need, especially in an area like the Paracels, the South China Sea, in, through this concept of, de of deterrence by detection, Tom? Yeah, our current work focuses on the, the contribution of non-stealthy unmanned aerial systems, uh, systems such as Global Hawk, systems such as Reaper, for providing that 24-7 presence in areas of concern. And these platforms, if integrated, networked properly, I think have the, uh, the ability to be ubiquitous, to be on scene 24-7 when needed. They're affordable, they're interoperable with our, with our friends and, and allies, and their information would be uh, capable of being disseminated widely. You write in, the, in your most recent work on this topic uh, about this, this fleet that you're proposing, the, the, there's a cost here but the cost benefit is high, you propose, 
and the cost, the new cost, isn't tremendously high. What's the reason behind that, Tom? Yeah, the reason behind that is because the you know the the platforms that we would need to construct this ISR architecture uh, are already in our inventory. Uh, although one of the, the Air Force has has uh, proposed to you know to cut some of these platforms in its uh, fiscal 21 uh, proposal, but we, we currently have the the platforms to do this. What's really needed are the operational concepts organizations to be able to link them uh, more effectively. And of course, uh, unmanned aerial systems are inherently um, you know more uh, more cost effective than manned platforms for for this type of mission. One of the reasons that I always appreciate the work that you and your colleagues do is you always have specifics. You always have specific solutions and not just problems. You write, the total number of UAS airframes needed to implement a deterrence by detection strategy in the Asia Pacific and European theaters would require 46 airframes in the Western Pacific and another 46 in Europe. And as you mentioned a moment ago, these are airframes that the Pentagon already has in its fleet, correct? Yeah, correct. I think part of the part of the challenge is that um, you know many many Pentagon leaders, service leaders, have come come to think about non-stealthy UAS in the context of the Middle East counterterrorism. But our point here is that we can repurpose those those aircraft and get a lot of use out of them in the context of great power competition, which is going on now, as as you pointed out you know, correctly in your in your lead in and is likely to to go on for years for successful. Hopefully it'll go on for 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 decades, you know, without leading to war. So we can get a lot of a lot of value out of the investments that the American taxpayer has has already made. So the investment that you're suggesting is one point four billion dollars a year based on CBO figures. And you write uh, the operating cost represents money DOD would have spent anyway. Why so? Yeah, well, um, already spent that that money in in operating, maintaining these airframes, right? And so what we're really talking about is repurposing. Uh, the actual expenditure would you know would be quite quite minimal because we already have the you know have the airframes in the inventory. Well, the, to that point, you write in this report, implementing the concept should only require DOD to change what it does with the aircraft it already pays for. What would it have to change, and how would it have to change it, Tom? Well, we'd have to think about them in the context of great power competition, right? Think about them operating over maritime areas in the case of the Western Pacific, uh, over littoral areas when it comes to, to Eastern Europe. We also need to think about new operational concepts for working with our allies and partners who are also uh, investing in many of these same platforms. So we see allied and partner investments in UAS to be a force multiplier. We need to think about how to more effectively uh, disseminate the information and and uh, aggregate information from from allies and partners to give a kind of more holistic view of uh, of the region. About thirty seconds left, Tom. But it strikes me that the comment you just made is kind of a no brainer because shouldn't we be thinking about everything in the arsenal in, in uh, relative to great power competition because of the national defense strategy? Wasn't that the point of that document? I think that's absolutely right. However, I think people tend to interpret that a little bit narrowly to think about the requirements of great power war, which would require high-end systems. Um, but we also need to plan for great power competition, which is, as we said, is, is going on now and doesn't always require exquisite 
in a high-end systems on a day-to-day -day basis. Tom, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you. Congratulations on this work. Thanks, Francis. Always a pleasure to be with you. Up next, an IT revolution at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Straight ahead on Government Matters, VA CIO Jim Jaffer on the telework and telemedicine explosion. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. This month's Digital VA is brought to you by Pure Storage. The Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Information Technology has new tools to help veterans protect their personal privacy online. It is one of several IT projects taking place as the office adjusts to the coronavirus. Jim Jaffer is Assistant Secretary for Information and Technology and Chief Information Officer at the Department's Vet Department of Veterans Affairs. Jim, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. How have you and your team adjusted to responding to what the department needs during the coronavirus pandemic? Francis, thanks again for your time and the opportunity to come on. Uh, the department, uh, obviously, like the rest of the federal agencies, uh, scrambled to uh, adjust to the new normal inside the pandemic with the declaration of the national emergency on March 13th. Uh, we found it was a nice dovetail to our existing modernization efforts. And if you had to sum it up, it would largely be an acceleration of what was already in flight and in progress. Probably the biggest adjustment for us was a rapid expansion around telehealth. We about 10x our telehealth appointments from about 2,000 daily sessions to over 25,000 daily sessions presently. Um, and then around telework, we about 3x, we had about 40,000 employees. VA is largely an on-prem, only about one-tenth of our workforce on a daily basis pre-COVID was remote and that uh, tripled uh, as, as a result of the pandemic. What did you have to do, if anything, infrastructure-wise to accommodate, especially I'm interested in the telehealth uh, exponential growth there, but infrastructure-wise, did you have to do anything that you weren't pl already planning to do, Jim? Uh, and again, I think largely it's an acceleration. Certainly around the telehealth, uh, we had to uh, provision with the vendors uh, a, uh, a cloud environment to help us scale out an existing on-premise uh, uh, solution that was limited. Um, and then I would say around our trusted internet connection gateways, you know, one of the great partnerships with our businesses, we were able to stress test around our, our virtual private networks and our access gateways uh, in the production environment. You don't often get that opportunity. And so working with the businesses, we we're able to identify what our true capacity was, work with our vendor partners to rapidly provision and upgrade those, doubling our bandwidth so that we could adjust to upwards of four to 500,000 folks potentially having to go offsite. Are you looking at this, Jim, as an ebb and flow because of virus response, or are you looking at this as a possible change to the way that the department does health administration, the way that it does telework moving forward, now that you've demonstrated that you have the capacity to do it on an ongoing basis? Well, I think that's the question, right, is I think the entire federal workforce is open to, and, and really the entire domestic and international community is, you know, what does the nature of work look like going forward? Um, and so, you know, the, the need and the opportunities that remote access provide us, certainly around telehealth, uh, you know, the, the ability to deliver care anywhere to anywhere is one of Veterans Health Administration's uh, mantras, and we want to continue to help them deliver on that, especially given that about 40 plus percent of our veterans that are receiving care are in some sort of rural environment. 
What have you, what are you going to try to leverage for that acceleration concept that you talked about at the beginning of our conversation to move forward in a post-COVID environment, whatever that looks like? Are, the, are you uh, going to be able to move things faster generally, do you think, because of what you've learned as a result of virus response? Well, we're very grateful for the additional resources that the Congress provided. As you know, we received about a $2.15 billion supplemental that will help us accelerate that. It, it really is necessary, you know, as, as I think all your viewers know, you know, the technology, while we are very efficient around the application of it, um, you know, when you accelerate programs like this, uh, you, you need the right resources at the right time. And then certainly uh, Veterans Health Administration and our other business lines are growing adding additional people, we're putting additional resources and performance metrics in the environment. So uh, we're very grateful for those resources that are being spent uh, very wisely. We have great governance and uh, an accounting around those to, to be accountable. Uh, but again, I think programmatically we're in, in good shape. Now the real question is in, in our multi-year plan, you know, how are we able to sustain that growth? That multi-year plan was the focus of the conversation when I came a couple of months back and, and visited you at the agency, Jim. Has this virus situation changed what your multi-year plan, or is that acceleration idea the main, the main change that you've seen over the last couple of months? Yeah, cer certainly the main theme is acceleration, but we are also finding some areas where uh, maybe we hadn't considered or, or the need didn't present itself uh, especially around cloud migration uh, to move certain applications uh, into the off-prem environment. So again, I, I think it's it's a combination of things. Uh, and again, the challenge is just working with business partners to prioritize, you know, even with the supplemental appropriation, uh, you know, there, there always is uh, an, an expansion around those requirements. And certainly the business partners are finding, uh, you know, new responsibilities and obligations that they have programs that uh, weren't considered to have any COVID impacts uh, are now, those are now revealing themselves. So again, going forward, that multi-year plan is going to have to be examined on a very frequent basis. We have about 30 seconds left, Jim. How will you make those assessments? How will you make those uh, priority reprioritizations? Will it be based mostly on budget or will you tie them mission and budget or some, uh, some other issue? Well, we certainly have a good governance program within the department and within the within the Office of Information and Technology. And so, again, uh, you know, we work very deliberately with the business partners to prioritize and for them and us to make the hard decisions. Certainly, the other thing that's been revealed, uh, I believe, in a, in a positive sense, is the investments that we were able to make from an enterprise perspective, uh, and to show that value, that flexibility, that scalability. Uh, to our business partners, to the Hill and to other stakeholders. Um, and so we need to continue to invest in those core platforms that really provide those services that the businesses depend on. Jim Jaffer, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you back. My pleasure. Thank you, Francis. Up next is the wave of federal retirees about to crash. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how many feds on the brink of retirement and how many agencies ready for a mass exodus? Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Federal agency human capital officers are at the forefront of preparations to reopen agency offices. 
With about 15% of federal workers eligible to retire right now, though, some workers may choose to stay at home even if they don't keep working. Jeff Neal's former chief human capital officer of the Department of Homeland Security. He's a chairman at Napa and writing about his, uh, retirement for his blog, chiefhro.com. Jeff, thanks for coming on as always. Should we expect this to be the black swan that you and I and others have been talking about in uh, the federal government for like 15, 20 years regarding retirement? Well, Francis, it certainly could be. You know, when, when we look at what's happened with the coronavirus, we see a large number of people have been sent home on telework. And so they're not going into an office right now and they're not taking the kind of risk that you might have to take in a, an unprotected office. So what we're seeing is that agencies are starting to, to announce their back to work plans to get people back in the offices. And some of them are saying that they're gonna provide masks for people, but they're not gonna require that they be worn in offices. And when you look at the people who are eligible to retire, um, you know, what goes with being eligible to retire is, is uh, getting older. And when you're older, you're in what the Centers for Disease Control say is a higher risk group for the coronavirus. So what we may see is that federal employees are asked to come back to work. Uh, they may want to do the, the right thing and take precautions and wear a mask, but some somebody sitting you know, next cubicle down may not think that's important. And if the agency isn't mandating that, those folks may not feel safe at work. And if you have worked 30 or 35 years in the federal government and are eligible to retire and your agency isn't in your mind protecting you, uh, you may decide you don't want to risk your life and go back to work and just go ahead and retire. And as you said, 15% you know, of federal employees could retire today. And every day, the number of people eligible for retire or for retirement grows. And so what you end up with is the potential to have tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of federal employees walk out the door if they decide they're not being safe. And that could be a, a massive problem for the federal government. The reason that I think you're really on to something here, Jeff, is because when we have talked, and by we, I don't just mean you and I, I mean people in general who care about this stuff. Mm -hmm. When we've talked about this over the last 15 or 20 years, it's always been around some big event, some person or something that's happened that will make people throw up their hands and very emphatically say, I'm not going to do this anymore. What's striking to me is the way that you describe it and the way you write about it in this piece on your blog it's more like the federal employee will be saying to him or herself, you know what, I just don't need to deal with this anymore. It's not emphatic. It's not a big event, so to speak. It is just, this is just a risk I don't want to take and I don't need to, so I'm not going to anymore. And it strikes me that's not as traumatic an event for an individual person to have to try to process. And so it will make it easier for that individual person to think through. Is, is that kind of what you're getting at here as you're trying to think about this on an individual rather than a collective basis? Yes, it is. You know, if you, one of the things I can tell you is as you get older, and let's say you're over 60, as, as I am, I've found, and a lot of people tell me this, as you get older, you get to the point where you have a, a much lower tolerance for crap, you know, to put it bluntly. And so, you know, it's not that you get angry and say, you know, I'm, I'm punching out of here, I'm mad, you know, never want to talk to you people again. It's like, okay, this just really isn't worth it anymore. There are better things I could do with my life than endanger it by sitting in an office full of people 
So I think I'll just not endanger my life anymore. And that's a that's a pretty it's a pretty common attitude that people get as they get a little bit older. And you know what we're talking about here isn't you know do you like your boss or do you like the new office they put you in or your cubicle is smaller than your old cubicle? This is you know do I want to do something that could endanger my life? And if it's going to endanger my life, don't think I want to do it now. And so that's that's what really is is driving this, I think. So you write in this piece, we have about a minute left, you write in this piece, this puts many older workers in the position of deciding whether continuing working is worth the risk to their health. That seems like a no-brainer. If I'm going to get sick, if I, go, if I think I'm going to get sick, if I go back to work, Jeff, I think the likelihood is that a lot of folks are going to stay home. I, I think so, Francis. And I think the no-brainer here is that federal agencies, particularly if they say we're going to provide PPE, we're going to provide masks for people, we're going to provide hand sanitizer, we're going to do things like that, then mandate that people wear the darn things in the office. You know, this... What if this happens, it will be a self-inflicted management decision that causes large numbers of people to go out the door. And the federal government can't afford to lose those people for a couple of reasons. Number one is they cannot hire young people right now. There are already more people over 60 than there are under 30 in the federal government. And they can't hire a lot of people right now. You know, the federal hiring process is so broken that hiring people takes forever. And if we have 100,000 retirees walking out the door or more, I, I think the government will find itself in a position where some agencies could actually be at mission failure because they made bad decisions on bringing people back to work in a way that did not, did not have to happen. So that's what I'd really like to see is to see them take every step they possibly can to protect their employees. And then this, this, this uh, wave of people walking out the door won't happen. Jeff Neal, thanks very much as always. Happy to be here. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.